You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Hello, this is Michael Webb, and you are listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. Many people focus on data and evidence and process improvement. Other people focus on reaching decision makers, better marketing, and better selling. In this podcast, we bring them together to make lives easier and better for everyone. Today, I'm excited because my guest is Dave Vronikar of Redwell B2B. Dave has a number of years, uh, many years, in selling high-end software, enterprise software. And Dave, welcome here. I'd love it if you could uh, just tell the audience about your background and what you're doing now. Sure. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, first, just with a, a quick introduction to what I do now, I, as you said, I work with uh, high-end B2B, primarily software, but also some other technology companies. When I say high-end, I mean that they sell products and services that typically sell for more than $50,000. That's to distinguish them from the SaaS software products where you can go online and uh, sign up and pay for it with your credit card. So these are what people often call complex sales because they involve multiple decision makers and they have a decision process that's uh, considerably more complex than other companies. Now, what I do with these companies is I help them prepare themselves for their next stage of growth. And we can come back to that in a few minutes if you like. But uh, how did I get here? Boy, it's a long and winding path. I'm always (laughs) fascinated. Yeah, I'm always fascinated when I hear People say that they always wanted to be something, and that's what they still are. I just, that, that was never the case for me. I started out in sales and marketing by accident. I think that's true of a lot of people. I don't think many little kids say, I want to grow up and be a salesperson or a marketing person. Right. What, what I wanted to be by the time I was in high school, I wanted to be an artist um, or possibly a writer. I've always been uh, sort of leaning more to the creative side. Sales and marketing is a pretty weird place for me to wind up. Um, as far as how I got here, uh, I started out actually as an art major in college, but quickly realized that that was probably going to be not the best way to spend my investment in a college education. So I decided I'd go liberal arts instead, majored in English. Probably a lot of people would also say that's not the greatest way to spend <laughs> <laughs> a college education. Come on, but, we use English every day. <laughs> exactly. Well, it worked out great for me, and uh, and I was happy I had made that choice. So uh, from there, I went on to journalism, and from journalism, realized that was going to be a tough road to hoe. I had some little kids, and wound up in corporate PR instead of journalism. That paid much better. I think you'll see a thread here. I'm always going for where the money is. Uh, rather than where the satisfaction is. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a lot of people these days are counseling young people to pursue their passion. And my experience is that your passions often don't pay for a comfortable lifestyle, certainly not for, for a family. So, Well, ideally, the passion brings the money, Right. Um, right. So, but that's a whole other <laughs> topic sure to is. talk about. So anyway, I'm afraid we're going to have them both. Long, 
I'm afraid this is a little long-winded. So I went to PR, worked at 3M for a number of years, realized quickly that uh, PR was a staff job, and everything I read and heard was that you need to be in a line position if you really want to have a bright future. Line position meaning one that's uh, linked to revenue generation rather than one that's looked at as a cost center. So I decided to move into marketing. I spent about uh, six years in marketing at 3M, and then I realized that in order to be a better marketer, I really needed to get some sales experience. And to do, to do that at 3M, I felt I needed to leave the company and leave the company headquarters. So I moved down to Atlanta and took my first job in sales. So, now, was that with 3M in sales? No, no, no. I left the company in order to do that. Okay, okay. At 3M, all roads led to St. Paul. Uh, there weren't many roads leading away from St. Paul to the field. Mm. So, so that's what I did. Wound up in the software industry and uh, spent a couple of years in marketing in software, but not terribly successfully, frankly. There weren't a lot of software companies in Atlanta at the time. Mm -hmm. So I switched to sales and then spent the next 20 years selling software. I gradually moved up from real narrowly focused applications to enterprise systems. Well, so that long and winding road there was probably very good for you in enabling you the perspective needed to sell enterprise systems, wouldn't it have been? Well, actually, uh, yeah, as it turns out, it was. I, My dad always used to say that every experience you pick up in life is going to reap some kind of a reward or a dividend further down the road, even if you have no idea what it's going to be. And I think you're exactly right that um, me having covered a lot of kind of diverse topics and even having been aimless at times throughout my life and my career, <laughs> um, ultimately proved to be a not a bad plan, not a bad strategy for one, what I wound up doing. So after you were in professional sales and obviously had been successful at it because you kept doing it and you, you grew into more complex kinds of sales environments, uh, what interested you in sales process? Well, you know, I think I have my dad to thank me for that. Um, and not... Not that he was so interested in sales process. He was, in fact, a salesperson. He was a manufacturer's representative. But the thing about my dad, he was a very, very smart guy, had only a high school education, as a lot of people did uh, in the World War II generation. Mm -hmm. But he was, uh, he was a brilliant guy, a very scientifically and engineeringly, uh, engineering-oriented. Um, in fact, he was a radar instructor in the Navy during World War II. Anyway, he, he was very process-oriented. He kind of had a scientific mind. He always used to say, you know, uh, Dave, there are a few right ways ways to do things and a lot of wrong ways. And uh, and it drives me crazy when I see you doing them the wrong ways. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. So, yeah, so I always <laughs> lean in and, uh, you know, sort of redirect my arm when I was sawing a board or, uh, you know, it didn't matter. He was, he was big on process. I think I picked it up. So, so then specifically within sales, what ideas or methods that came from a process perspective, how did it help you be successful? Oh my gosh, I'd be, I would have been dead in sales without, uh, without process or without methodologies. You know, as I said, I started out, uh, I am, I am a creative. I started out trying to de deny that I was a creative in sales. And on top of that, I'm an introvert. So you know, I had no sales training, didn't really know much about business because I majored in liberal arts. Um, the one 
ace I had up my sleeve is that I'm an avid reader and I read like crazy. And uh, so when I realized I was going to go into sales, I realized that I knew nothing whatsoever about sales and I had to educate myself. So I read everything I could get my hands on and I just sort of learned it by rote, um, just by reading and reading and reading. And a lot of the early stuff I read wasn't very helpful, but eventually I stumbled onto stuff that was absolutely phenomenal and um, absolutely turned my career around. Almost all that was related to process and methodology. Hmm. All right. So if you started out selling, if I understood you correctly, more product-oriented transactional kinds of things, and then you ended up selling more enterprise, you know, like relationship kinds of sales, um, am I correct in assuming that that was the progression? And tell us about your learning as you went through those more complex environments. Well, uh, no, I, I, I'm sorry. It's not quite correct. And I realize okay. I, what I said was a little bit misleading. Um what I mean by, I, I've always worked only in complex sales. I've never sold anything that wasn't fairly complicated. Uh, what I mean is that I went from uh, sales positions where our average deal size was maybe $50,000 mm-hmm. uh, to to sales where I think my biggest sale ever was $14 million. Mm. So, so it, you know, it's always been technically a complex sale, but it went from fairly small sales to, to really, really big ones, really complex ones with uh, multi-billion dollar companies. So definition of a complex, complex sale is that there are multiple buying influences, right? Correct. Yeah, that's so right. So is it fair to say that uh, in a um, you know, multi-million dollar deal, there's a lot more buying influences than there are in a $50,000 deal? Oh, way more. And uh, the companies that I was calling on also shifted. So initially, when I was selling $45,000 products, I was often selling on, uh, excuse me, I was often calling on the owners or uh, managers of family-run companies. And they maybe did, you know, somewhere between 3 and $20 million. Uh, and in a family company, often the decision-making process is not very formal. Uh, in some cases, it's pretty dysfunctional. But, um, you know, they don't really have a well-established process for Mm -hmm. for buying software. Mm -hmm. You move into a uh, Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 company, um, you know, they've got a board of directors, and that decision for a multi-million dollar sale is certainly going to go to the board of directors level, and it's going to have to go through an elaborate economic justification and all kinds of scrutiny. And everybody in those companies is most concerned about risk. So, you know, they pile on everybody they can to okay a deal before anybody wants to take full responsibility for for saying yes. Hmm. That's the biggest difference I see. Okay. So, but these are still sales where the salesperson is the one sort of driving everything in the relationship until the business is won. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. Now, in all cases, uh, I was well. I would I, uh, I would be the person who would find the opportunity in almost all cases. So I was considered a hunter gatherer. So I would find and identify the opportunity, and then I would uh, qualify it. And once I had found it and qualified qualified the opportunity, I would bring it to a team, and then from that point, it would be a team sale. And I was fortunate that I usually had really, really good teams because in these 
with these products that I sold, I could rarely have sold them all alone without a great deal of terrific consulting support. Mm-hmm. So, and that, you're talking like engineering support and configuring the software demonstrations and helping to do return on investment analysis and those sorts of things, right? Exactly. Although I got to say, you know, this I'm talking about uh, the early 80s. Uh, nobody did return on investment analysis at that time. Uh, when I started selling, we didn't even have computers, uh, believe it or not. I mean, you know, we didn't I think laptops were just coming into use in sales uh, in the 90s, right? Late 80s, mid 80s, late the late 80s, something like that. And I remember my sales managers were always saying, "Get your nose out of that computer." Go knock on some doors. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Pick up the phone. (laughs) I don't want to see that blinking computer on your desk again. But uh, that that was uh, that was the mentality, and that's what everybody did. But um, so so we didn't do economic justification, to answer your point, or ROI analysis. But uh, but definitely we had uh, technical pre-sales people who were experts in the prospects business. Uh, his or her business processes in particular, and in the software business, people don't really want to buy software. What they really want to do is buy an improved business process, and that's what that's what. You're All right, so I know something about that because in nineteen yeah nineteen eighty one or eighty two, I uh, took a job with a mini computer software company. At, well, a mini computer company, and we sold our products because we had good software. And we would have to find a small or medium-sized business, especially like wholesale distributors or small manufacturers, and get and sell them an integrated accounting system. Integrated accounting, integrated order entry, inventory control, that sort of thing. Sure. And when you improve the information processes inside the business, there's lots and lots of ways to do return on it. On investment, I, what you said puzzles me about, well, they, they really didn't do return on investment back then. Tell me more about why, why you say that. Well, it's funny. I, I, you know, competition was so much less intense at the time. Um, again, in the 80s, the companies I was calling on were smaller companies, and they, they typically didn't have the kind of financial controls in place. They didn't have a highly sophisticated uh, Chief financial officer who probably had a uh, an MBA uh, from an Ivy League school or something of the kind. They were just kind of like, "Hey, you know, do you think we need this? And do you think it'd be good for the business? And what would it allow us to do that we can't do today?" And uh, generally, all they had to do was sell a couple of family members. Really? What platform did your software run on? on I'm sorry. Uh, it, was, it ran it ran on AS400. AS400. Okay. Yeah. Well, that explains part of it then. Because the AS400 type of a market, uh, there were lots of machines that IBM had placed. We were, I was with a no-name computer company called Basic 4, MAI Basic 4. Yeah, I remember that. We would compete against them. And, you know, the hardest, you had to scratch and find any justification at all, right, to get people to consider you because they had not heard of you before. Most of the time, our software was way more flexible and less expensive and, you know, 
way better uh, machines for small business, easier to support and maintain and all that. But it was very difficult to find uh, prospects and get them uh, converted over to buy from us. So we used ROI a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, that I mean, that makes perfect sense. But, you know, I, I found uh, ROI analysis really didn't come into play until, at least for me, until the early 1990s. Okay. And um, I eventually created a spreadsheet I was selling inventory management and uh, forecasting and replenishment systems. I eventually came up with a spreadsheet that showed what your inventory would be at your current growth rate if you do nothing differently than you're doing now versus what it would be if you could achieve a uh, 10% per year reduction of inventory. In other words, you could improve your inventory turns by enough to reduce your inventory. And uh, boy, once I created that spreadsheet, it really changed the business because people could see right then and there, oh my gosh, we're, we're nuts if we don't buy this. That was a huge step forward. Wow, that's great. Well, so is that the sort of thing that, uh, I, I mean, the next question I was going to ask is what's unique about the sales processes that you work with? And as you're counseling clients and working with them now, is that the sort of thing that you're encouraging them to do? Well, I mean, certainly I do, but um, oddly enough, uh, ROI spreadsheets and economic analysis and all that kind of stuff, in a sense, is old. I mean, as I said, it, you know, we were doing it back in the early 1990s, and most companies that sell relatively um, valuable software systems already have that. Uh, oddly, though, a lot of companies still don't and, and still don't sell value. They sell features and functions. So it kind of varies from company to company. What I typically do these days, Mike, is I help software companies, as I said earlier, prepare for their next stage of growth. And what by that I mean, often a software company uh, gets to a stage in its life cycle where uh, it needs to grow much faster than it has been. They've got a product, they've got a customer base, they've got a value proposition and other things, and at the time that they go to bring in outside investors, let's say private equity funding or a um, venture capital firm, uh, those investors want to be sure before they plow their money into this company that it's ready to go, that when they put the, um, their foot on the accelerator that the engine isn't going to cough and sputter and, and die. So interestingly, a lot of these private equity and venture capital companies have invested in companies that just didn't take off as they were expected to. So I and my team go in and evaluate companies before they make these kinds of investments to make sure that they have all the elements in place to grow at the rate that the investors expect them to. Hmm. It's a really very highly specialized thing, and the interesting thing about it is there are relatively few people who are doing it. Hmm. I remember um, back in the 90s, um, and early 2000s, um, I was in the Chicago, actually early 2000s in the Chicago area, and I attended a uh, a, a meeting of um, a bunch of venture capitalists were attending, and you got to watch 
several small companies make their pitch to the venture capitalists, mm-hmm. kind of like Shark Tank, right? Shark Tank idea, yeah. Yeah, and so we got to watch, and it was quite interesting to see the questions and the responses um, that those entrepreneurs got as they were seeking funding. And then at the end of the meeting, you got to go and stand in line and meet some of these people. And um, I did that because I, too, at the time, and I still do, like you, uh, have a way of of ensuring, uh, sort of assessing whether the sales process has the capacity to actually achieve the business plan. And, um, uh, you know, a data and evidence kind of driven way of doing it. And I thought, well, of course, these venture capitalists would be very interested in such a thing. And boy, was I surprised to learn how little interest these venture capitalists had in something like this. I mean, I thought it would be like, you can have your accounting system audited, right? That's a very important thing to know whether the data that the accounting system is producing actually fairly represents the financial condition of the company. What if you could have data and evidence to represent the the sales capability, right? Can it really uh, generate the revenues that you expect it to generate? And boy, as soon as you use use the word sales, it was like a magic wall came up in between you and the venture capitalist fellow. Oh, yes, sales. We have someone who helps us with that. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Right. They were they did not understand what I was trying to get across to them at all. And in recent interactions here in Atlanta, I've learned the venture capital community is still the same way. For the most yeah, part. that doesn't that doesn't surprise me terribly. And not just venture capital, but private equity is the same way. And, uh, I mean, here's the way I look at it. Typically, in private equity and venture capital, you have people who have really, really good educations. They are usually the smartest person in the room, uh, or they often are, and, and they know it. Uh, they're really, really proud of themselves. They have a staff of very quantitatively oriented young MBAs who get out their spreadsheets, and they do all this kind of analysis, and they figure out, uh, you know, do the do the company's metrics look okay? What about this? What about that? Um, and and they're very confident that this will go well. You know, they're, they tend to be optimistic. That's why they're in a risky business like investing. So they think they've got it all under control, and a lot of them think that they'll do fine by just hiring the right sales leader, yep. you know, by hi- hiring the, the right VP of sales. And the crazy thing is, um, I mean, they're often right, but what they what they sometimes do is bring in a sales leader that, whose work they're familiar with because that sales leader helped them with another company. Here's the key. If you take a sales leader out of one company at one stage of growth and transplant that same sales leader to another company that's at a different stage of growth, that sales leader is much less likely to succeed as he or she did in the past. Right. That's because they're dealing with a totally different circumstance. Right. The last thing a fish discovers is water. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. they, they live in it. It's invisible to them, right? Right. 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 So th- th- I think that's a very interesting thing. Now, I agree with you. It's not always an easy sale. But, but, um, but when people see this, when they understand this idea of stages of growth and that the needs are very different, and if you can ever get them to recognize that, wow, uh, having a fancy degree 
from an excellent school doesn't give us any exposure to sales and marketing and how to deal with customers and how to evaluate the power of a, let's say, a customer value message or anything of the kind, then their minds open up a little bit. But as you say, that's a that's a tough thing to get people to recognize. That so, they just yes. don't have any experience. I have to tell you a story. I, I, this week, I was with a client, and we're with a, a sales team and their branch manager, and we're designing an entirely new sales process for them to uh, expand in a new market that they're not good at selling into. And so we did, uh, as one of the exercises um, with the sales team, we did the spaghetti challenge. Have you ever heard of the spaghetti challenge? No, I haven't. So you get 20 pieces of spaghetti, you get three feet of masking tape, three feet of string, and a marshmallow. You break into teams of four people each. You have 18 minutes to build a freestanding structure with those uh, elements, right? The spaghetti, the marshmallow, the string, and the tape. And the one that holds the marshmallow the highest off the table... And it actually stands there. You can't have it fall over. If it falls over, you lose. The one that has the highest marshmallow wins. And it, you look it up on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's absolutely a fantastic way to engage a team because there's so much to learn. Most of the time, the teams will talk for a long time and make a plan on how to do it. And then, oh, wait a minute, we've only got five minutes left. We better get going. So then they start trying to tape the spaghetti together and all this. And, and then at the very end, before the 18-minute mark, they put the marshmallow on top and they thought they would be able to hold up the weight, but it doesn't hold up the weight. It falls over. And so mm. they've done this with thousands of people. And um, interestingly, the, the group of people who do the poorest in the, marsh, the uh, spaghetti challenge uh, are recently graduated MBAs. They, they have the structures that don't stand up very well. And yep. the reason why is because they're taught to think out, you know, very carefully to come up with the best plan. And some of them are, you know, jockeying. They want to be the CEO and they want to be the leader. So there's a politic and, and you know, um, interpersonal things going on there. Interestingly, the group that normally does extremely well, much better than expected, are recently recent graduates from kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is because they don't have these preconceived notions. None of them are trying to be the head of Spaghetti Inc., right? Right. And so they just stick the spaghetti together, and within the first five minutes, they've got a little prototype, right? Uh, and it either worked or it didn't. And so they end up doing three or four or five experiments, and they end up with a pretty darn good structure when it's done. Well, there's such a life lesson in that. And in <laughs> fact, uh, you know, it parallels it parallels all the work that's been done over the past decade or so, uh, two decades, I guess it is now, uh, with respect to the lean startup and all this new yes. methodology that's emerged um, that, that focuses on uh, learn fast, fail fast, iterate fast, and, uh, you know, also, I guess it's consistent with the idea of, uh, of agile development and agile marketing and so on. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so two questions for you. In these stages of growth of the companies that you work with, 
what is the difference in the sales processes? That's the first question. Oh my gosh. Well, there's, there's a huge difference, not just in process, but also in, in organization, the kinds of per- people that you would hire, uh, and so on. When a company is in a relatively early startup phase, and they're still trying to figure out if they have a product that they can sell, and if they have a, a big enough market to sell it to, typically at that point, the CEO is doing most of the selling work. Uh, so the CEO, him or herself, goes out and calls on companies, and it's a very uh, consultative sale. Uh, the CEO directs uh, product development to uh, create the kind of product that uh, his early customers want and that sort of thing. Uh, then when a company gets beyond the point where a CEO can handle those sales, let's say they've proven that they have a product that more than a handful of clients will buy, and they want to start scaling it a little bit, they go out and hire their first salesperson. And that salesperson has to be of a certain temperament and personality and has to have certain skills. They have to be able to get on the phone. They have to be able to network. They have to be very comfortable with ambiguity and vagueness, you know, with, with, with gray, gray areas and so on because they don't have a specific well-defined uh, process. They don't have a specific well-defined uh, industry that they can sell to. They have mm-hmm. to be extremely flexible. They have to be really good at thinking on their feet. Mm-hmm. Then... Uh, when you start hiring additional salespeople, let's say the company now is to the point where they are ready to expand, well, now you need a sales leader who is more oriented toward process and uh, who's not the lone wolf, but who is somebody who can organize a team, so somebody who can attract and hire the right kind of salespeople, who can coordinate them, who can put together um, you know, inspirational talks, good sales training, good sales onboarding programs, uh, and who's a good and who's a good coach? That's a different animal again. Very few people have all three of those different categories of strength. And of course, when a company gets even bigger, let's say they have a sales force of 20 people or 100 people, uh, then you're really talking about a sales leader who is an administrator primarily, somebody who's really good with spreadsheets and budgets and uh, methodologies and processes and who's good at making boardroom presentations and so on, and who's good at managing managers. Um, So each of those represents really quite a different sales circumstance. They require very different people, uh, very different processes, and very different skills. And incidentally, you could say the same about marketing, being substantially different from stage one stage of growth to the next. That's really um, pretty interesting. Let me ask you this question. From the point of view of the customer, the sales process, is it the same or different in a company at those different stages of growth? It's different because uh, typically, now I'm talking about software, which is my, my main experience, but typically the kinds of companies that will deal with a young company that has a not very well-defined product, uh, has no market share, isn't a well-known name or anything of the kind, the kind of customer or prospect that that tiny company is going to be dealing with is an organization that is culturally open to risk. They're innovative organizations. They're, they want to be, you know, they're, they're, they're comfortable being bleeding edge companies. This kind of gets back to the idea of um, um, crossing the chasm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeffrey Moore's idea that, you know, just because you succeeded with 
with innovative companies that are willing to take risks early in your company's development doesn't mean you're going to succeed with the more conservative companies that don't want to be bleeding edge with anything and that have a lot of processes in place and they don't want to take risks on a young company that doesn't have an established product, established market, established market share, and terrific support. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting because it almost sounds like at those different stages you'd be selling something entirely different. Well, in fact, you are selling something entirely different. Um, you know, it's you may think there's some continuity to the product, but the way that you present it is entirely different. The messaging is different. The sales methodology is different. Uh, the sales process is different. And I think a lot of founders, um, you know, who often come out of technology fields or maybe finance or who have MBAs, don't realize the significance of all these huge changes that their company's going to be going through uh, under their tenure. Hmm. Okay, so if I was to ask you, um, what are the main mistakes that you see organizations make, these business leaders, when it comes to managing um, their sales organization, I guess through these stages of growth, I guess, what would they be? Oh, my gosh. Um, it's, such, it's a long, long list. Um, and I'm not going to, I promise you, I'm not going to give you that long an answer. But they make, they make, I've seen companies make mistakes at almost every stage. And to put this into context, I've worked with, uh, last count, 18 different software companies. Some, many, I guess most of those have been an employee, and some of them have been clients of mine. But in every case, every single case, I have seen these software companies, both large and very small, uh, very small, I've seen them make classic mistakes. They hire the wrong people. Uh, they don't train their people properly. They don't allocate their territories properly. They don't give them the kind of support they need. Uh, they put together compensation plans that are all wrong. Uh, they they don't have uh, you know they don't they don't give them any training, um, either in product or in selling skills or selling methodologies. Uh, they don't give them the kind of pre-sales or engineering support that they need in order to gain credibility with the customer. Uh, they don't listen to their salespeople. They think salespeople are kind of like pawns out there that they put in the field and the pawns are fairly expendable, you know, on some giant chessboard. Mm -hmm. They don't realize that salespeople um, have their finger on the pulse of their marketplace. So, I mean, those are just some of some of the mistakes, and there's there's just a litany, and I've never seen a company that doesn't make many of those mistakes. So, uh, sales is a world full of opinions. I mean, it's got it's difficult for technically oriented people who want data, right, to know what changes to make, who, which of the salespeople to listen to, right? So. I don't know, if you know me and my, my way of looking at the world, um, the, a root cause of all those mistakes, I'll, just, I'll, I'll ask you, is a root cause of all those mistakes the weakness or the inability of the sales team and the sales management to identify causes and effects with data? Wow. Uh, I know what answer you'd like me to give, Mike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you my honest answer, which okay. actually you and I have discussed before, and that is it really depends, I think, on the size and the culture of the company. 
uh, in the smaller companies that I've worked with, and I've worked with uh, probably half a dozen startups, uh, management isn't doesn't want data. Right? They they just want results. They're very very pragmatic. They realize that they have a short runway uh, before the plane has to take off, before they can get revenue, before their investors start getting nervous or pull the plug on the on the company or, or the cash flow runs out. So they're not looking for data. They're looking for any any evidence of what works. Period. As you get into a bigger company, let's say a company that's moving into its fast growth stage, uh, you know, that, those companies probably don't have enough infrastructure to be, or process in place to be able to gather much data. They may be hungry for it, but they often don't have the sophistication or the systems or anything in place to find the data. So they're coming from behind and trying to put in place analytics and other things that can give them the data. Uh, and then the larger companies typically have have plenty of data uh, if anybody will pay attention to it. And I think it's probably the late growth stage and uh, the bigger companies where the growth is starting to level off where data is probably most valued in my experience. Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, we, we may have to... Uh, um pick up on this discussion of uh, what's data and does it take a lot of time and money to get it and 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 all that stuff um, at another time but but um, you know I never had really considered I mean I've, I've I've heard of the crossing the chasm but I never thought about it uh, in the light of sales process or never thought about sales processes in the light of crossing the chasm so it sounds to me like as the organization grows, there's a completely different infrastructure inside the company that supports the process. Um, and uh, there's a lot of struggle in how do you, you know, build that infrastructure? How do you know what investments to make? And it sounds like that's the place where, where you are playing. That's the place where you have guidance and recommendations for people. That's exactly right. And the real danger is, Mike, that uh, companies often don't know that they're not making the right investments until their growth starts to plateau or it coughs and sputters. You know, investors are expecting hockey stick growth. Uh, they step in the accelerator, the engine, <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't go anywhere. Cash flow suffers. Uh, investors start doubting the credibility of the CEO. Sales managers get fired. Uh, salespeople get questioned and all this sort of thing. And uh, people don't realize that it's a system problem, typically, rather than a personal problem or a yeah. personnel problem. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the problem is they don't know it until they're in the midst of it. And once they're in the midst of their crisis, they can't diagnose it. They can't see it for what it is. That's the risk. Mm. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, Dave, can you, if someone wants to get a hold of you, um, and learn more about what you do. How would they do that? Well, uh, they can go to my website, which is uh, Redwell B2B. That's R-E-D is in David, W-E-L-L, and the letter B as in boy, the, the numeral two and the letter B as in boy again. So RedwellB2B.com. Or they can phone me at a toll-free number. It's one 877 324-9500. If you don't mind, I'll say that again, Mike. It's 
Excellent. Super. So we will, let's, let, if you don't mind, I'd like to, uh, to pick this up at another time and go more deeply into this issue of uh, data and the role it plays in decision-making at these different stages. Would that be something you'd have some energy for? Sure, absolutely. I'd enjoy it. Mike, this is terrific. Hey, you know, I might say, I just want to add uh, that when I was interested in sales process maybe 10, 12 years ago, I came across you and your work and uh, bought your books and started following you and got your email messages and everything. And, and uh, I have found you always to be uh, kind of a shining light in this area. And <laughs> Thank I, you. Seriously, I, I, sometimes it was a tough sell within my own organization, which is why I never brought you in for a consulting gig. But uh, for somebody who's process-oriented, you were always there to feed my hunger, and I really do appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And we will pick this up this conversation again because you've touched on a, a number of things, I think, that are uh, rich opportunities. So uh, thanks for your uh, support over the years and your interest. This was a great conversation, and uh, we will do it again. Terrific. Thanks so much, Mike. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.